Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Tell your father I'm here. Tell him the Lannisters aren't the only ones who pay their debts. Could be. Is that a Star Wars reference? A new beginning? No, this is actually some new beginnings. Our next American journey. Too late to change it? It is. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And this is the Nerdette Podcast. Coming up, Game of Thrones is back, which means so is Maria. Megan, you love to read. You love mysteries. Even if you don't like to watch or read the books, you will be so fascinating. The way they twist and the turns, and you think you realize, you oh, I know what is going to happen. Oh, hell no. Ain't happening. And it's going to keep you forever guessing. For those of you who are not familiar with Maria, we featured her in one of our earliest episodes, actually. Episode six. Episode six. That is wild. Nerdette contributor Megan Murphy-Gill called Maria, her stepmother, to talk to her about Game of Thrones because whenever the family gets together, Maria wants to talk about Game of Thrones. And at that point, Megan was not watching the show and Maria thought she could convince her. So we had her do it on Nerdette. Here's a little more of that conversation that they had last year. I keep HBO for that particular stupid reason to watch Games of Thrones. Can you believe the crap? Believe it. It has to do with dragon and dragon class. And here again, Khaleesi and the dragons. This is all very confusing to me. It sounds to me like I just need to watch. You need to sit down, watch the whole nine yards. So I have basically until next spring to watch, what, three seasons? Yes. All right, I'll let you know. Okay. And it worked because now Megan is caught up on the show as well. And later in this episode, you'll hear from Megan and Maria about what they thought about the season premiere. That means there will be some spoilers for those of you who haven't seen it yet. But first, we came across an interesting story from the site 538 this week. 538, of course, is statistic wizard Nate Silver's website. 538 is the total number of electors in the Electoral College, of course. You nerds knew that, I'm sure. Duh. (laughs) About three weeks ago, the website was acquired by ESPN, and they've started doing a greater variety of things. Originally, it was just sort of political punditry, and they have expanded. Now they have a lifestyle section as well. That's where we found this article. This is the first piece of in-depth data journalism for the lifestyle section of 538, and it's all about how movies with women who play prominent roles fare better in the box office. The main test they're using to identify movies that use women in prominent roles is the Bechdel test, and Walter explains it pretty well. So the test was introduced by Alison Bechdel in a 1985 strip of her comic Dykes to Watch Out For. And it's sort of like a a three-tiered test that analyzes how prominent uh, women are in film from, like, the most basic perspective. The first criteria is that there are uh, at least two women in the film. They are named characters. Uh, The second is that at some point in the film, these two women have a conversation. 
And then lastly, that conversation is not about a man in the film. It's about anything else besides a guy in the film. So by these criteria, our conversation right now would not pass the Bechdel test. Uh, No, it would not. (laughs) (laughs) So I have to say, and I don't know, maybe this is probably one of my random flaws that I'm not hypersensitive to this. I don't know. Maybe it's a good thing. But I was really surprised to read that like only half of the nearly 1800 movies released in the last 43 years passed this test. Yeah, it's pretty shocking. I mean, it's like when you think about it, it's not that difficult to pass this test. You kind of actually have to try to either exclude women from top billing, to only characterize them in the sense of the man that they're interested in. Uh, I mean, we were talking about it, like about 10, 11% of the films that we analyzed had fewer than two named women. And that's just like, that's almost difficult to pull off. But yeah, it's pretty shocking that only a little bit over 50% uh, actually passed the test. The vast majority of the ones that fail are just, there are two named women in the film, but at no point did they talk to each other. Right. And you have some other examples that are pretty legitimate. Like you mentioned Gravity, which there just is no other woman in the film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Gravity is clearly anchored by Sandra Bullock. Like it's clearly a film that has a positive portrayal of women. But just because of the way that the test is, it it doesn't manage to pass. And then on the same token, the other example that we had of a weird false positive was American Hustle which is not really like a film that features women in a very prominent way or a way that's not contextualized strictly by the men in the film. But at some point in the film, lo and behold, Jennifer Lawrence has a conversation about nail polish with another woman in the film, so it passes. So it's not a perfect test by any stretch, but it's really the best that we have when it comes to ascertaining how prominent some women are in these films. Hopefully, maybe someday we'll get to the point where we can have a fourth tier that's like they can't talk about men or makeup or, you know, (laughs) bra sizes or anything else that's equally vapid. But anyway, we'll save that for another conversation. (laughs) So can you talk a little bit about the data that you use? Totally. So there's an outstanding site called BechdelTest.com that is run by active people who are interested in whether or not films pass the test. So we downloaded their 5,000 film database. And then what we did was we tied that to a site called thenumbers.com. And the numbers analyzes the budget, the uh, domestic gross, the international gross, the worldwide gross for these kind of movies. And they had around, if I recall correctly, about 4,500 films. And the intersection of these was about 1,800 films between 1970 and 2013. And when we kind of uh, narrowed that down to the core set, the strongest set that had the most depth and data, we got it down to around uh, 1,600 films released between 1990 and 2013 with information both on if they passed the Bechdel test, if they failed, how did they fail, and also all their budgetary information. So how long does it take to crunch data like that? Uh, This was actually one of our longest projects. We knew that we wanted to do something about women in film. We felt that that was something that was like, we could actually add some value to this, that there hasn't been a ton of number crunching. I mean, uh, the Annenberg Center at the University of Southern California is at the moment doing outstanding work when it comes to analyzing uh, women behind the camera, women who are in films as characters. And we hadn't really seen anything that tied budget to the prominence of women in film. So we knew that we wanted to do something in that regard, and it took a little bit of kind of narrowing down how we wanted to approach it. But um, once we kind of figured out what we wanted to do, it took about two weeks. Yeah. Were you surprised by the outcome? I was somewhat surprised. I kind of went into this figuring that these films would have a lower budget. I, like, I'm that pessimistic about Hollywood. <laughs> um, but I was, uh, I was actually pretty surprised on two things. The first was how demonstrably 
their budgets are lower. We found, like, if you look at the averages, it's about 20% lower. If you look at the medians and break it down by at what point do they fail the Bechdel test, to give you just some brief numbers, uh, the median budget for a film since 1990 that passed the Bechdel test was $31.7 million. For a film that women don't talk to each other, it was $56.6 million. Now, this is a huge disparity, and I had no idea that it would be this big. But uh, the other surprise that we kind of had was actually really encouraging, which is when we looked at the return on investment, and we found that if you just look at the raw numbers, films that pass the Bechdel test tend to have a better ROI than films that don't. Now, is this a result of them just kind of having lower budgets and lower budget films tending to have better ROI? Maybe. We found that there's no credibility to the persistent idea that films with women do worse. We statistically demonstrated that. But I thought it was really encouraging that uh, films that passed the Bechdel test had a better ROI. Because uh, then you can kind of make an argument that maybe we should have more of these movies. Exactly. I love it from the point of view of the data sort of backing up where we should be societally anyway. You know, it's like, here, look, these are the numbers. What are you going to yeah. do with this now? I forget who I was talking to, but somebody was asking like, oh, so do you think that this is going to change the way that Hollywood does stuff? This article was like, absolutely not. There's no way that we are going to change the way that Hollywood does stuff. But we'll consider it a win if our research can be used as an asset by folks in Hollywood who are trying to kind of affect this change. And really just kind of getting it out there is what we were really hoping to pull off with this. And I'm glad that we uh, we had these findings that can be used by decision makers to actually kind of back up these kind of investments. Absolutely. So what has response been in general? Have you gotten a lot of interview requests? It's been pretty positive. I've had a couple interview requests, but I don't really kind of focus on those. The things that were really encouraging were folks who were kind of writing about it, like getting Jezebel to write about it, things like that. It, it, we kind of got a lot of good traction, it seemed, on a lot, of, a lot of sites that I really respect when it comes to this kind of stuff. We had some folks from the industry reach out and say, this is cool, can you send us the raw data, which obviously was extremely exciting. And most uh, most excitingly, actually, a researcher at Northeastern University published, basically, they redid our analysis from the top down. And uh, it's always nice to get confirmation that, yep, other people tried this, and it, we found out that we were right on this. So we had people checking our work, and it really kind of motivated a lot of people to look into this, which is the biggest win that we could hope for. That's great. So you haven't lied to us all. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, I can confirm that academia confirms uh, what we found, which is always pleasant. Yeah, that is good. I love the idea of someone calling you up and asking for the raw data to be like the most exciting possible outcome. <laughs> this is, um, without going into detail, this is somebody who works within some of the studios. Uh, we've had people actually reach out who were excited by this. And when you kind of see that internal Hollywood, people are interested in this and people are looking for this kind of justification. Well, I think, too, it's that idea of, you know, here you are, you've worked with this data for a really long time, you, you know, to a certain extent, kind of put your heart and soul into figuring this out. So the fact that other people are interested in it on the same level, I mean, that's got to feel pretty rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's it's really appealing to, like, I'm really passionate about this kind of stuff. A lot of the folks at 538 are really into doing this kind of writing, uh, the stuff that uh, illuminates legitimate disparities and kind of busting myths when it comes to this kind of stuff. So anytime that you get uh, people who are equally interested in it, it's really, uh, it's always nice to see. You know, in general, the idea with Nerdette is that anybody's a nerd, right? It's like you don't have to have the suspenders or the thick glasses. It's whatever you're really excited about makes you a nerd about that thing. And you seem like you're a pretty legitimate nerd yourself. <laughs> What, uh, what makes you say that? <laughs> I mean, well, partly how passionate you are about data, obviously. But just kind of looking through your Twitter and stuff, it seems like you have some uh, fun extracurricular nerdy passions as well, huh? 
Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> so I'm watching Game of Thrones, and I'm actually working on a little, nothing too huge, uh, a little data analysis about that, uh, especially the books. I read the books for a while, and I'm, I'm really interested in, uh, again, the women in Game of Thrones. Like, I can unequivocally say that Sansa is my favorite character. I don't know if you're watching the show or anything. <laughs> but um, she's definitely the most appealing, has the most compelling growth as a character over the course of at least the books. They've done a really good job in the show. Sophie Turner's done uh, turned in a, a fantastic performance. And so there's definitely some, some stuff there. That's the main thing that I'm watching. Yeah, you know, I have to say, I think Game of Thrones is boring. I used to really like it. And the books, too, like, I just kind of petered out. I don't really know what happened. Like, I don't know. The buildup is just so plodding, almost. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. There's definitely a couple, like, um, so the biggest critique of the books in recent years has been uh, the Daenerys uh, arc, which is, um, the, again, the Targaryen who's in uh, the other continent trying to reclaim the throne. And that's been really plotting. That's kind of turned a lot of people off, even though it's a really compelling story. Uh, again, Dragon Lady, it should be awesome. Yeah, I know, right? But no, she just kind of parks it for a little while <laughs> in a city kind of far from other folks. So that's uh, agitated some of the fan base because... I mean, when you have three dragons, like, check off dragons. I don't know if you're familiar, but uh, something's <laughs> going to happen that's pretty exciting with those dragons at some point. And the lead-up has been a little bit uh, too long. <laughs> Thanks to Walter Hickey for chatting with us. He's at Walt Hickey on Twitter, and he tweets lots of nice things. Especially about Game of Thrones. I just love the idea of Chekhov's dragons. Anyway, regardless of my ambivalence, we know pretty much everyone on Earth is super excited about the newest season of Game of Thrones. I'm excited. I worked so hard to catch up on the show for you, Greta. And then as soon as I did, you <laughs> lost interest in it. I feel I mean, betrayed. It's a little unfair to say I lost interest in it, given the fact that I obviously am still watching it. As is the rest of the nation, turns out this was another one of those moments where HBO Go like pretty much exploded on Sunday night because the newest episode had come out. And Jimmy Fallon had the best line about that. But that's right, HBO Go crashed during the uh, Game of Thrones premiere just a month after it crashed during the finale of True Detective. And people were really upset. They were like, look, my neighbor pays good money for this. I mean, I, I should be able to watch... That's hilarious. Walt actually had a very similar tweet that was like, my roommate's grandparents are paying good money for this. <laughs> Oh, HBO Go, how we love you. Anyway, we thought we'd check in with our favorite stepmother. This is Maria. She's a delightful Greek woman who lives in Florida. And again, she is the stepmother of Nerdette contributor Megan Murphy-Gill, who gave her stepmother a call to see how she felt about the return of Game of Thrones. So, Maria, tell me what your general impressions were after the season premiere of Game of Thrones. I'm so excited about the new prince that showed up, and I hope somebody teach the Lannisters a lesson. Is that the guy who said, who said Lannisters aren't the only ones who pay their debts? Yeah, I like that part a lot. I hope somebody can teach them a lesson because they are them animals. And I love the way Arian took revenge of her friend, how he got killed and got back her sword. You liked it? It makes me sad because Arya seems to have lost her innocence. It just seems like she went to the dark side to me. I'm with you on that, but somebody has to stand up for Starks, and if it's her, I would love her to become like her father because she's honest too now. She always, between her and Sansa, I love her character better because she was more like, wake up, smell the coffee. I feel like Sansa 
has changed a lot over three seasons where she started out as a little snot. Now, so many bad things have happened to her that you just feel sorry for her. I think that she's going to fall in love with Tyrion. What do you think? Now, that is something I don't really know. I don't think she can trust anybody because, like you said, she got to the predicament. It was her fault from the beginning. She made her bed. I feel sorry for her, but she had the opportunity twice to get the hell out of there, and she stayed there. I mean, to me, the most important thing here was that Snow was alive, and I want to see his fate also. Because he's so handsome? Yeah, I love him to death. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know. Now, my theory on that, he knows the other side of the wall. I believe, I'm assuming, he can put them all together to fight against the dead people with the help of his brother. So I would like to see how that is going to work. And if he sees the girl, if, you know, if he's really falling in love with her or not, I would like to see that too. Who do you think is going to die this season? I have no idea because I can't tell you from the first episode. Really, I didn't even thought about that. Who will die? What about Daenerys and her dragons? Now that is an interesting story there. That I can see how that is going to work out. I mean, to me, I like her so far. I really like her because she really does justice with the meaning of justice and everything. She has been good and her beliefs treats the people with decency. Now, how all that is going to come out, I believe that the thing is going to be between the dragon lady and the dead man. I think that's where the whole finale is going to be. Who is going to win there and how Snow and his brother is going to work all that out. That's kind of like the fire and ice, right? So the Fire and ice, that's it. What was your favorite moment? The favorite moment is I love that Snow was alive because I wanted him to be alive. I said, damn, all the Starks now are going to be dead guy because I love the Stark family. I'm a fan of the Stark family so far. And I love that he's alive, and I like the way Arian took the revenge on that man. I like that now she's going to learn how to fight and stop to be a victim like her sister sounds. I love that part of her. I hope she will not prove me wrong. Well, do you think that this is going to be a really good season, or do you think it's going to be kind of mellow like oh, last year? Yeah, it's going to be a good season because the new character they brought in, the prince, oh man, he's going to steal some shit in there. Oh, hoo, hoo. And if Jamie is going to keep his promise to keep Sansa safe also, how about that one? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I think it's also worth noting the last time Megan talked with Maria, Megan was all, what's a Stark? And now she's naming the characters and completely entranced with the story, too. It's pretty beautiful. Thanks again to Maria, Megan Murphy Gill, and Andrew Gill for his help with that segment. I'm hoping we'll hear a little bit from Maria every week. Her recaps of the episodes are my favorite. I gotta say, Sunday nights on HBO are way different than they were just a couple weeks ago. Remember True Detective? Right, and Girls and Looking... Now it's all nerds and dragons and political flax. I was pretty happy in both scenarios, but this new lineup is one that is going to be even more of appointment television for me going forward. Definitely. So in addition to Game of Thrones, we have Veep, which is back for its third season. Super exciting. That's the half-hour comedy starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus as the vice president, Selena Meyer. This season, it looks like she's going to be running for president. So there'll be the same old characters we love, folks like Tony Hale from Arrested Development, and a hilarious ensemble 
We'll probably see even more new characters because if you're going from vice president to running for president, you're going to need more staff. That means probably great cameos, even more comedic actors, having a lot of fun playing in this space that's sort of like West Wing meets Arrested Development meets... Something where everyone is really inept at their jobs. Yeah. (laughs) The office, maybe? Yeah, maybe the office. I feel like that's actually quite fitting. I think you totally could have gone into this third season without having seen any of the others, and you still would have found it hilarious. But also, if you've kind of been following everyone along, they're all developing in a really interesting and hilarious way, too, which is super rewarding. So the return of Veep we're excited about on Sunday nights on HBO. Also, of course, as we discussed, the return of Game of Thrones. And then there's a new show called Silicon Valley, which actually, Trisha, I'm super curious to hear what you thought of this show. This show is a half hour comedy, I guess. <laughs> it was pretty funny. <laughs> Set in an incubation lab house thing where a bunch of nerdy guys, there's very few women, so we can just keep saying guys, where a bunch of nerdy guys are working <laughs> in the tech sector and trying to make it. We see a lot of flash and new money being thrown around. There's really audacious parties happening. A lot of disparaging comments about how all women want is money that were a little upsetting to me. So I'm going to need to see some female characters in the show for me to not think the whole thing is just a bro fest. Yeah, it is definitely failing the Bechdel test. It is so far completely failing the Bechdel test. But I'm going to give it time because Martin Starr, who we didn't even see in this pilot, but he's the thing I'm still most excited about in this show. Sam, come on, shake it. You won't break it? Okay. You cut me off mid-funk. You cut me off (laughs) mid-funk. Maybe you remember Martin Starr from Freaks and Geeks. He was Bill Haverchuk, and he has grown up to be a delightful and even more hilarious human being. I loved him from Party Down. Trisha, by your description of the show, I feel like you've given us a somewhat fair representation of how you felt. But Well, I think pilots are hard. So I never want to cast too much judgment on the first half hour of anything. They're doing a lot of work to establish characters, to set a tone. And so I don't think that we've seen everything the show can be or that Mike Judge is going to be giving us in this first half hour. Again, we didn't see Martin Starr. We know he's going to play a major part. And this is one of those situations where the show might get some guff for not having a lot of female characters, but it might be truer to the experience of what these characters would be going through if they were actually in Silicon Valley to see this culture, as broy as it is, play out. It's not the job of the show to make a magical world where women are equally represented in the tech sector. The reality is that there are very few women working in some of these offices and in these environments and that the guys maybe aren't interacting with a lot of other female programmers. So I'm not going to make it Mike Judge's job to solve that problem about the gender <laughs> gap in computer science. But the show is still going to need to have some female characters who are more than models at a fancy party sipping on cocktails and fawning over nerdy rich guys for me to keep watching it. Yeah, for me, the lack of women characters isn't necessarily a deal breaker. But in general, I found the pilot to feel really stiff. And I think you're right when you say it's a pilot, we need to give it a couple more tries. I'm actually not at all compelled to keep watching the characters. However, I do think there is a lot of potential for the story arc, which is why I'll keep watching. So far, it's about this one programmer who creates this app that has this really sophisticated algorithm in it that it turns out everybody wants. So all of a sudden, everybody's kind of bidding on this app that he made. And he has to decide between whether he wants like a whole bunch of money right now, but no ownership or 
95% ownership and a lot less money. And that to me, even in and of itself, is like an interesting quandary. And so it was fun to see them working through that. And I think it will be fun to see like where they go with this storyline. There's a lot of winks and nods for tech geeks in the show. There's a moment where somebody says the first name Steve and they say Wozniak or Jobs, who are, of course, the two founders of Apple. And I think I got a few more of those jokes and references in the Silicon Valley pilot on HBO than I would have because over the last week or so, I went down a Steve Jobs rabbit hole on Netflix, (laughs) which brings us to homework because I'm going to assign two tech-related things for you all to watch as homework. One is the Steve Jobs biopic starring Ashton Kutcher as Jobs. The movie is called Jobs. And that's now on Netflix as of about a week ago. I hadn't seen the movie in theaters. And I have to say that it was an interesting look at someone who so often is just named a genius and we don't peel back the layers at how complicated genius can be and how difficult genius can be to work with and for. I thought that Ashton Kutcher did a great job in this movie. The transformation visually is quite stunning, and he does a lot of work physically and with his voice that make him really believable in this role. The film itself, I felt, ended sort of abruptly. The movie takes you only up through the release of the iPod, and of course Steve Jobs' career went on beyond that to the iPhone and other things, but it made sense for the arc of the story they're telling. So your first piece of homework is to check that out on Netflix and then go down the Steve Jobs rabbit hole one step further (laughs) to the thing that I'm actually going to recommend even more highly, which is something that's on Netflix that's called The Lost Interview with Steve Jobs. It's a raw, unedited news magazine interview that Steve Jobs did in 1995. And the only thing that ever aired from this was just a few minutes, right? This is how interviews typically work for television. They might talk to somebody for an hour on camera and use three or four minutes for a piece. But after Steve Jobs passed away... They decided to release the full tape because they thought people would be interested in it. They thought it was lost forever. They found it in the director's basement on VHS or something crazy. They explained that at the beginning of the clip. And then what you get to watch is a very candid Steve Jobs discuss the history of tech, not just Apple, but the things that he saw other tech companies do that were good or bad. He explains how Xerox and Dell and all these other companies, Microsoft, had their rise and fall on different product launches. It's a side of him that I had never seen. I'm enough of a nerd that I actually watched the product launches that he did. So I would watch the whole keynote when he announced the new iPod or the iPhone. It was very exciting. But this is an interview that he did while he was still working for Next. He hadn't yet returned to Apple after being pushed out of his own company. So I highly recommend checking that out on Netflix. That's Steve Jobs' The Lost Interview. If you're only going to watch one thing, I'd say watch that and skip the Ashton Kutcher movie. Interesting. I like it. My homework for you is going to be to read something because we've assigned a lot of watching things. <laughs> Fair. Um, but it's reading something that's eventually going to be a thing you can watch. So, you know, here we are. Um, I've mentioned it before. It's called The Leftovers. It's by Tom Parada. It will be an HBO show starting in June. The preview just came out and it looks really good. And it's a really good book, too. I mean, the premise is great. The storytelling is wonderful. It ends really beautifully. I highly recommend it. The Leftovers by Tom Parada. It's about the rapture. How much better can it get than that? If there's something that you read or watched that you think we should check out, you can always give us homework by calling 3 3- one two six hundred five six three eight and if you went down a netflix rabbit hole and found something really cool make sure you tell us about it we love unearthing those kinds of things for the rest of our nerdette listeners so help us out again that's three one two six hundred five six three eight nerd archaeology archaeology <laughs> all right that's it for this week thanks to walter hickey from 538 and to maria 
And of course, to Megan Murphy-Gill and Andrew Gill for their production help. Thanks to our home stations, WBEZ and WCQS. Thanks to our listeners on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Throw us some stars if you're feeling munificent. Ooh, good word. Right? We'd like to especially thank those of you who heeded the call for iTunes reviews, Code Knitter, Brit Over, Duffy Bates. I'm especially excited about the username Code Knitter. Thank you for the stars. We really appreciate them. Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.